Hello, uh, this is Robert Stark. I am joined here with uh, Sean Gab. Uh, Sean, it's uh, great having you on. And many thanks for having me, Robert. So, you are the chairman of the Libertarian Alliance in the UK. Can you talk a little bit about that organization and your involvement with it and what their goals are? Yes, indeed. I'm the director of the Libertarian Alliance, which was founded by a number of people back in 1979. I joined a few weeks after it had been founded. I was rather young at the time. I became its director in 2006 and have continued ever since. The Libertarian Alliance is a charity. We have charitable status recognized by the uh, British tax authorities. Our objectives, or... Well, our, our mission statement says that we exist to bring to general attention the value of the English liberal tradition and to bring to general attention such defects um, in adhering to liberalism as the British state may from time to time exhibit and to encourage a new generation of young liberal and libertarian advocates. When I say liberal, by the way, I, I use the word in the British sense rather than the American. Um, that, broadly speaking, is what we're about. Uh, if, if you'd like one particular detail on that, I would say that um, at the moment in Britain, uh, it may be the same in America, but certainly at the moment in Britain, we do not seem to be living through an age which is especially propitious for the achievement of libertarian ends. And so, while it is always possible that something may turn up um, which we were not at all expecting, the overriding objective of the Libertarian Alliance is to remain in being and to keep some kind of British libertarianism alive until an age which may be rather more propitious for the um, reception of that ideology. I know in America there's a sort of uh, divide within libertarianism. Like you have a sort of the libertarian establishment like uh, Cato Institute and Reason uh, magazine and then you also have uh, libertarians that are maybe more, more, more traditionalist, or even sort of with like a paleo-conservative leanings. Uh, I get the impression that your organization is closer to the latter than the former. Yes, I suppose it is. Um, that's partly my fault because I am a conservative of sorts. However, I try not to be any kind of sectarian. Um, if I had to, well, if I were invited to a conference in America, I would go to one of the von Mises conferences um, with high expectations. If I were invited to a Cato Institute conference, I would go with a certain trepidation. However, I still fully accept that um, the, the people associated with the Cato Institute and Reason magazine are libertarians. It's just that they happen to emphasize different aspects of the ideology from my own. And, and so, although I do incline to the more traditionalist end of the libertarian spectrum, I do accept the existence of a spectrum on which uh, Cato Reason and uh, von Mises and all the others um, are quite clearly placed. One thing I'm reading about the Libertarian Alliance that's interesting is one of the issues it's tackled is uh, outlying uh, extreme pornography. I know a lot of libertarians believe basically like anything goes, there should be no censorship at all. Okay. Um we are rather conservative in our private lives, um, the current generation of Libertarian Alliance leaders. But, but the point is, um, there is a 
consistent and long-term attack on freedom of speech and freedom of association in this country. And um, what the British state and its various client groups are trying to do, and indeed very largely succeeding in doing with um, erotica, shall we say, is to bring in a more thoroughgoing censorship than we have ever had in the past. Uh, Let me clarify this. Until fairly recently in this country, the only obscenity offence was um, to publish. It was a publication offence. If you published um, a picture of an erect penis, you might be arrested, the offending literature would be destroyed, and in extreme cases, you might go to prison. But it didn't matter what you had in your own possession. You could have any books on your shelves, you could have any magazines under your bed. The authorities had no right to make any kind of inquisition on the contents of your library, however defined. And and so, although we had the Obscene Publications Act, and although this was um, restrictive, it was a law which applied to publishers, and it was necessary if, if the authorities wanted to get a conviction under the Obscene Publications Act, it was necessary to prove publication, and, and that required um, some objective evidence. Whereas what we've moved to more recently is a rather more liberal regime on what can be published. For example, you can now publish photographs of erect penises. Indeed, you can publish videos and images of all sorts of things, which even 20 years ago would have been regarded as outrageous. But at the same time, it it has become illegal to possess a whole range of images and videos. So basically, in in America, uh, other than uh, child pornography, uh, most... Most pornography is pretty much legal to possess. Are you saying in England there's a whole subset of uh, uh, genres of porn that are illegal to possess? Yeah, child pornography is illegal to possess over here. Um, I'll come back to that in a moment because... Sorry, I will come back to that in a moment. Um, There is... Since 2009, it has been illegal to possess what is called extreme pornography or violent pornography. And when this uh, law was brought in, the government assured Parliament, it assured the people, that this would lead to not more than a, a, a hundred or so prosecutions a year. When asked to define extreme and, and violent pornography, the ministers declined to comment. Well, it's been left up to the author- it's been left up to the police and the courts, and it's now running at about three thousand convictions a year. When you have any kind of law against possessing something, you give enormous power into the hands of a potentially corrupt police force. A police officer can come into your home and look on your computer and find something and say, I have reason to believe that this is a photograph of a young person who is or appears to be under the age of 16. And although that person may well look 35, and may indeed be 35, the thing is that you have now been arrested uh, for the possession of child pornography. The first thing the police do once they've, uh, once they've made the arrest is to telephone your employer. They then contact the local media, and so your life is effectively ended. Now, although the charges may well be dropped just before they get into court, because these charges, if taken into court, would collapse, um, it doesn't matter because the process is the punishment. And 
the authorities started by criminalizing the possession of child pornography and no one is in favor of the right to create or publish child pornography or at least I'm sure some people are but very few people advertise that fact and for the avoidance of doubt I'm not in favor of it um, and so when the authorities say let's criminalize possession Everyone keeps quiet, thinking, well, I don't like the sound of that, but on the other hand, I don't want bricks through my window. And once the Yeah, the thing with uh, that is uh, most, most people go along with these laws because they're appalled by uh, uh, child pornography, but it's used as justification for the government to spy, on, to spy on people the same way uh, terrorism is. In the United States, it has. Mm. I, I was reading recently in England, they're going to propose a law that basically any police officer can look at someone's uh, web browsing history. In America, they they do it anyway, but in England, they want to make it so it's like completely legal for the law enforcement to just find people's internet history. Yeah, that's a complex issue because there are aspects of European Union privacy law which need to be dealt with before the authorities can do that. Um, but undoubtedly, once you move from publication offences to possession offences, and again for the avoidance of doubt, I believe that there should be strict laws against the creation and publication of child pornography. Once you move from a publication offence to a possession offence, it means that the police have a green light for doing over anyone they dislike. They can plant evidence because you don't need to prove how a particular image or video got onto someone's hard disk. Or they can simply say, as I said earlier, I have reason to believe that this is an indecent image, etc. Um, it gives enormous and dangerous powers into the hands of the authorities. And so far, very few people have been willing to protest against this. And having got their child pornography possession law, the authorities have now got their extreme pornography possession law. And since we don't know what extreme pornography is, um, it means that potentially in five or six years' time, we may find ourselves with a much more restrictive law on pornography than we had in the 1950s. One thing that is ironic is that uh, countries like England, England is one of the most uh, socially, in some ways it's one of the most socially liberal societies in, f in terms of people's like behavior, but at the same time there's a sort of police state about governing uh, sex laws. The thing is in countries that are more traditional and have more uh, traditional values, they have less of a they have uh, less of a police state about these things. They have. Um, I think what we need to understand is that there is never any single set of social forces at work in a country. Um, even today, there are forces in my country which are pushing for increased liberalisation. At the same time, there are other forces which are pushing for the creation of a police state. And um, although we shouldn't perhaps focus on pornography, it is a useful case study. For the past 40 years, um, speech on sexual matters has been becoming progressively more free than it was. So the main area where it's also got in draconian is there's laws about a, a hate speech. Ah, yes. In European history, the way it was kind of a slippery slope, originally there were laws about like explicitly pro-Hitler uh, comments, uh, Holocaust denial laws, but now people are actually getting arrested for, for, just, for just for criticizing uh, immigration. Yes. Um, that is the case... Now, in the past few days, a young National Socialist... Uh, sorry, I, I'm relying on the Daily Mail report, which may not be accurate. In, in, in the past week or so, a young National Socialist called Joshua Bonehill has been sentenced to three years' imprisonment for publishing anti-Semitic cartoons. 
I haven't seen these anti-Semitic cartoons, but um, three years inside for publishing something, uh, it leaves me aghast. What on earth could he have... How, how on earth could the authorities justify this? I read the Daily Mail um, report on this in, in which the investigating police officer waffled on um, at some length about how this kind of publication caused real hurt within communities. And so we have now moved from a law which criminalizes uh, the kind of speech which may cause wild rioting in the streets um, to, to a law punishing people for upsetting other people. You can go to prison in my country for upsetting people, which strikes me as horrifying and, of course, dangerous insofar as it can be extended. Um, you, as with pornography, you pick on something that very few reasonable people are prepared to defend. The Holocaust revision, for example. And, and then you move on to all sorts of other things. And, and I suspect that in the next few years, we shall, in the next few years in my country, it will become dangerous and borderline illegal to, to say that a woman's place is in the home or that global warming is a fraud or that uh, British membership of the European Union is not in the national interest. It, um, once, you, once you start criminalising certain opinions, th there is no limit to, to what else can be criminalised. I remember a while back in uh, England, a lot of government officials and police officers lost their jobs for being uh, members of the British National Party. Um, yes, what, what happened, I believe, is that somebody stole the British National Party's membership list and put it onto the internet. Now, um, although it is a disciplinary offence to be a serving police officer or to be a teacher employed in, in a state-maintained school and a member of the British National Party. It does seem that BNP membership, generally speaking, is protected by the Equality Act 2010. Uh, the, the Equality Act is a piece of PC legislation which um, tries to stamp out discrimination against all, all manner of um, groups. It's just that the Act is drafted so broadly that it also includes um, deeply held political opinions, and uh, it, it does seem that um, so long as you're not in, in contact with children or ethnic minority people, and even then there are limits to that, it, it does seem that um, if you are sacked from your job for being a member of the BNP, you have a cause of action just as much as if you were sacked for being a black person or a woman. Now, this is what I said when, this is what I meant when I said that there are more than one set of forces at work in any particular country. On the one hand, it is becoming harder to oppress people for their opinions. On the other hand, it's becoming easier. And it's very difficult to say where the overall balance lies. Are we actually that much less free today in practice than we were 20 or 30 years ago? And I can't give a ready answer to that question. I can show you examples of where I can show you examples of things that it would have been legal to say or do 30 years ago that you can't say or do nowadays. But I, I can give you many other examples of things which it is now legal to say and do. So um, we're in trouble, but it's hard to say how big the trouble is. You uh, g gave a speech about uh, Enoch uh, Powell, and he's someone who's uh, been definitely uh, vindicated by uh, history. He has his famous uh, speech, uh, Rivers of Blood. Oh, can, yes. you, 
talk about Enoch Powell, but also what's interesting is uh, he's someone that you admire. There's definitely what is your also there's a whole kind of a a large subset of libertarians who believe in open borders. Oh right, well Enoch Powell in the first instance, um, he died I think in 1998, and nowadays unfortunately, indeed for the past 40. 45 years, Enoch Powell has been mostly associated with immigration. Um, whether you love him or hate him, you will, you will define your opinion, sorry, whether you love him or hate him, your opinion on Enoch Powell will be based on his Rivers of Blood speech, which he gave in April 1968, uh, w when he became the first leading British politicians to talk about the dangers of unlimited third world immigration. However, Enoch Powell is much more than the Rivers of Blood speech. Enoch Powell was one of the first and the most notable, most intellectually distinguished British politicians who in the 1960s looked at the government's economic policies and said, this isn't working, this won't work, we need to move back to a system in which more emphasis is given to market forces. Powell was a, a strong unionist insofar as he believed that Northern Ireland should be fully integrated into the United Kingdom, and he was a strong opponent of Scottish nationalism. Enoch Powell was a strong opponent of British membership of the United Kingdom. He was profoundly suspicious of the United States and he spent much of his life arguing for a more isolationist British foreign policy than the establishment politicians were willing to entertain. And so Enoch Powell is much more than immigration. He was a he was a most remarkable um, he, he was one of the most remarkable British politicians of the 20th century. As for open borders, well, all I can do really is tell you what I think. I believe, ultimately, in a world where states either don't exist or are of much smaller importance than they currently are. And this means that borders between states will become rather like the borders between English counties, or indeed between American states, and it will be quite easy for people to move across these borders. Now that is a long-term objective. I do look forward to a single human race. But as I said, that is a long-term objective. At the moment, if we were to open the borders to all who wanted to come and live among us, um, I do not think that it would lead to a more libertarian society than the one we have. And for that reason, I do not believe in open borders at the moment. Are you just concerned about uh, the open borders and immigration issue from a sort of from the perspective that it would lead to bigger government from a libertarian or more libertarian perspective or do you think that basically like from there's also the more sort of a nationalistic view that uh, England should be like uh, for the English people and should be culturally English uh, which which uh, point of view do you subscribe to more I am a cultural conservative and I regard English civilization as being something worth defending. However, um, let me give uh, let, let me give a particular argument at the moment against open borders. We live when you have a reasonably homogenous nation, a reasonably homogenous country, let's say, like England in the nineteen fifties and sixties. Um, you can have a democratic system of government because it means that the um, sorry, it, it means that uh, 
For example, Labour won the elections in 1964 and 1966. Um, the millions of Conservative voters who, um, whose men didn't get elected were willing to put up with that because they knew that the Labour majority would not abuse its absolute legislative sovereignty in the United Kingdom Parliament um, to do anything outrageous. And, and they knew that there would be a fair election four or five years' time and that uh, they might win the next election. It was a question of organising and putting your argument and generally doing better. And so when you have a reasonably homogenous country, you can have democracy. Uh, you can trust the majority with um, power over your lives and property, and you know that sooner or later you'll get another chance. When you have a balkanized country, balkanized by race or religion or by language or by any particular form of different identity, when you have a balkanized country, um, elections tend to be decided in advance by the census figures and those um, a majority tends to be a permanent thing and a minority is a permanent thing and it becomes a very dangerous thing to allow the majority to have the kind of power over the minority that is taken for granted in a normal liberal democratic state. And the establishment uh, political parties, they use mass immigration as a way to uh, stay in power uh, permanently? Um, there is some evidence that the Labour government elected in 1997 was doing its best to import a new electorate. Uh, another problem with a balkanized country is that when you have an homogenous country, everybody not only trusts each other to some extent, but is willing to take is willing to find common cause against the authorities. When you have a balkanized country, you have groups which do not speak each other's language, do not have the same concerns, and they may find themselves competing for state favor against each other rather than cooperating to limit the state. It's rather nice to be a member of a free-floating ruling class in such a country when you don't face a united people but instead can play off one group against another. This is what happened in the Habsburg Empire during the 19th century and it is something that uh, may happen in the European Union during the present century and it may be something which will happen within Britain and within America uh, before too many years have passed. Do you see the uh, libertarian ideology as uh, culturally uh, unique to uh, Anglo-Saxons Anglo or do you see it as ap applicable across cultural boundaries? I know Islamic libertarians. I know people who are devout Muslims and who insist that the true message of Islam is about human liberty. Now that does not seem to be the consensus opinion w within that um, faith tradition, but uh, there are libertarians or there are very strong liberals in every country, in every race, in every religious tradition. So far, so far, a broadly free society has only existed in Europe. Oh, Europe and those parts of the world settled by Europeans. Um, and so if you ask me, is it true that only Europeans so far have been capable of creating free societies, the answer is yes. It's a matter of historical record. But if you ask me, is the whole of humanity capable of enjoying political, economic, and social freedom in the future, my answer is, I think so, and I hope so. One other issue with uh, immigration is that a lot of immigrants come from authoritarian societies, so their 
they're happier to be in a more society that's more prosperous, but at the same time, because they're used to uh, authoritarian society, in some cases, are more tolerant of a police state. That may be the case. Um, all I can do is talk of my own experience. I have had large numbers of Muslim students over the years. And these people take a somewhat more nuanced position of political authority than your average neoconservative immigration restrictionist um, claims they do. If you ask, uh, if you ask an intelligent young Muslim, would you like Britain to be a totally Islamic? country in which Islamic law was the law of the land? He would say yes. If you ask him, do you believe that the British state as it is should be unlimited in the way it exercises power? The answer will be a very strong no. Now, some of these people, it may be, are willing to engage in all manner of untoward actions to achieve an Islamic state within Britain. Most, I suspect, are not. Uh, they are people who say, oh, an Islamic state would be a glorious thing, but uh, not just yet, not just yet. And um, I have not seen any large-scale Islamic agitation for a police state. Oh, they want laws to stop people from laughing at them. They want laws to stop people from laughing at their profit. But um, those particular demands tend to be rather limited in extent. And so I don't see any present danger to our civil liberties from the Muslims themselves. The danger is mostly from the white politicians who make use of immigration. Well, the point I was making is not so much that the immigrants themselves are the main force for totalitarianism, but uh, that they would, that they're more likely to support establishment politicians. My observation in the United States is that uh, U.S. citizens are probably... I mean, I've met I've met people from immigrant backgrounds who support dissident candidates. I mean, I was involved with the Ron Paul campaign in 2008, and I met people from uh, immigrant backgrounds. So I'm not saying 100%, but my I would say in general in the United States, people from uh, foreign backgrounds are more likely to support establishment candidates like, uh, say, Hillary Clinton, while dissident candidates are... I would say disproportionately like people from middle-class American backgrounds. That's just my observation from the United States. Yes, that may be the case. It's, uh, it seems to be the case here in England as well. Um, the ethnic minorities, when they bother voting at all, do vote disproportionately for the Labour Party. They, they vote Labour essentially for two reasons – one is they perceive Labour as a softer touch on immigration, and of course uh, many of them would like to import their relatives to this country as well, and um, having a Labour government is something they perceive as in their family interests, and also because they perceive Labour as softer on welfare, though I think that is a secondary issue. I know some libertarian on the issue of welfare. Uh, uh, some libertarians have uh, proposed uh, replacing the welfare state with like a uh, citizen's uh, dividend or a basic income. And the other thing is like one argument is that a, a basic income might be necessary because of uh, globalization, outsourcing, and uh, jobs being replaced by technology. Um, I used to regard the advocates of a basic income or, or an assured minimum income, define it what you want. I used to, I, I used to regard these people as cranks. Um, bear with me. 
forgive me. I used to regard these people as cranks. Um, I, I've since thought about it rather more, and I, I should apologise. They're not cranks. I failed to. I failed to see the world as it ought to be seen. There is always a problem. It may be there is a problem with many libertarians. Um, many libertarians tend to defend the current order of things as the outcome of a free market, whereas quite plainly it isn't. And um, sorry, I'm not making complete sense. I believe in either no state at all or in a very small state. And I do not think that state welfare is a good idea. However, that does, n that does not mean, and it should not mean either, that I believe in the immediate dismantling of the welfare state. We do not live in anything approaching a free market. We do not live in anything approaching a society in which the overwhelming majority of people are capable of taking their own life choices in every respect. And uh, that means that for the foreseeable future, uh, unless we are prepared to sit back and watch large numbers of people starve in the gutter, that there will be some kind of welfare safety net. And the only question then is what kind of welfare safety net should we have? And if you look at all of the means-tested and discretionary uh, and often highly regressive welfare policies that we have in Britain and America, uh, unemployment benefits, supplementary benefit, uh, old age pension, um, housing benefit, free school dinners, all, all of that sort of thing, they are... It is a complex system. It is um, a very expensive system to administer, and it gives employment to hundreds of thousands of bureaucrats who exercise power more or less oppressively over the recipients of this system. And if you were simply to scrap the whole of this and say, right, everybody, every British citizen over the age of 16 gets £800 a month. And nothing else. You get £800 a month. And um, you pay income tax on everything you earn after that. Well, that would be pretty si that would be very simple to administer. Um, it would not give rise to the same levels of dependency and fraud and oppression that you have from most welfare systems. And, um, well, you know, if we must have welfare, let it be that kind of welfare. You wrote a book called A Cultural Revolution and the Culture War, How Conservatives Lost to England and How to Get It Back. Uh, can you talk about that book? Yes, that was written... Okay, I published the book in 2007, and that was before I made proper contact with the American conservative movement. It seems that all by myself I had rediscovered the cultural Marxist hypothesis and applied it to England. I thought that I'd come across, I thought I'd come up with something so wonderfully original and was very proud of myself. I then discovered that um, the same kind of analysis had been made by the American conservative movement for about 20 years. Um, the broad sweep of cultural revolution, culture war, is that Britain has a ruling class which is no longer interested in nationalizing the means of production, distribution, and exchange. It, it is no longer interested in wholesale redistribution of wealth from people at the top to people at the bottom. It is interested in creating some kind of multicultural love feast. 
And because this is impossible to achieve w without the mechanisms of a police state, the, the, the ruling class has become increasingly favourable to the creation of a police state. It, it has led to str it's led to a number of sorry, it has led to a number of um, scandalous inconsistencies. Back in the 1970s, for example, leftist politicians would insist on every they would insist on every last atom of due process for accused IRA terrorists, people who wanted to break up the United Kingdom and who were trying to bring this about by detonating bombs all over the country and killing civilians. But if these people were arrested and taken into court, the leftists wanted due process all the way. By the early years of the 21st century, once the leftists were in power, well, th there was a young black man or a black youth called Stephen Lawrence who was killed in rather murky circumstances in London in 1992 or 93, 93 I think it was. And after various attempted trials... Uh, it, it became impossible to take the suspects into court any further because of the rule against double jeopardy. And so because the authorities wanted to get these people, these suspected killers, who may indeed have been the killers, but there are legitimate doubts about this, because the ruling class wanted to get these people into court for a proper show trial, the double jeopardy rule was dumped you can now be tried twice for murder in this country. You can be tried for murder twice if what the authorities accept to be new and compelling evidence has emerged. And so the law was changed, and lo and behold, new and compelling evidence was discovered. The suspected Stephen Lawrence killers were taken into court, found guilty, and um, sent to prison, where they oh, remain. So heard in the UK you don't have the like Miranda rights like in the United States where you have the right to remain silent oh yes yes we have all the usual common law rights um, you have a right to remain silent some year 20 years ago the government tried to get rid of this um, let me let me try to summarize the position if you are arrested you have a right to remain silent. You do not have to answer any police questions. If, however, at your trial, you suddenly come up with a very good set of excuses that you ought reasonably to have um, said to the police at the time, then uh, the fact of your silence may be revealed to the jury. Uh, but I was advised many years ago that if arrested by the police for any offence, what I should say to them and insist they write down is, I am prepared to answer any questions you put to me in order to establish my innocence. However, I choose to say nothing until I have... Um, I, 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 say, I, say, I choose to say nothing until I have taken legal advice... And if that's read out in court, nothing can be inferred from it. So, yes, we do have a right to silence. We have a right not to be beaten up in custody. We have a right not to be held in custody uh, be, be beyond a certain time. It's basically 24 hours, but it is possible in extreme circumstances for this to be extended to seven days. There is a bad law still on the statute books uh, passed by the last Labour government which allows people to be held for up to 28 days, but I don't believe that this law has been used. So, I mean, when I lived in England briefly, and my observation of the police there is what's interesting is, I mean, in some ways England is like a polite police state because it is a police state, but the police officers... My impression of them was that they were a lot more polite and professional 
uh, in America, a lot of cops are are assholes and they go out of their way to be abusive towards people. But yes, well, I, I've noticed that to the same degree. My impression of English police officers, even though I dislike the laws, most of them came across as pretty uh, p- professional. Yeah, it depends where you live. You lived in Plymouth, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yes, that's quite a nice place. I live in Deal, which is even nicer. And the police outside the big cities are just like they've always been. Reasonable, um, affable. uh... In Plymouth, the police presence was extremely low, actually. Well, you hardly ever see them in Deal. Uh, However, if you live in London, the police are not pleasant. Uh, five years ago, five years ago, they stopped a taxi in a North London High Street, dragged its passenger out, spread eagled him on the road, and shot him to death. This was a young, a young half-black criminal called Mark Duggan, and this sparked off a week of wild rioting throughout London and various other parts of the United Kingdom. Uh, ten, sorry, ten years ago, when the Muslims let off those bombs in London, the police went into the underground, they went into the underground railway system, and they shot a young Brazilian to death called Jean-Paul de Menezes or something. They, they said he looked like an Islamic suicide bomber and that he was um, fiddling with a jacket to detonate a bomb. We'll never know the truth of that because the uh, closed-circuit television footage has uh, disappeared. And so the police are a trigger-happy lot in London. Uh, do not let them into your house if you live in London. And broadly speaking, keep away from them if you live in London. The police are... Oh, uh, sorry. If you you go up to one of the police officers you see in the centre, outside the Houses of Parliament, or wandering up and down Whitehall, and ask him the time, he'll tell you the time and he'll be very polite. And I sometimes even ask directions from these people. But the... um, you know, the, the shaven-haired, rat-faced ones with um, funny Mexican-style moustaches who speed round London in um, their, their police cars, the, the, those people are best avoided. They'll beat you up, they'll shoot you, they'll fit you up with something. Um, they're just not very pleasant. So... Uh, one thing about uh, economics is that libertarians uh, in general are for lower taxes uh, on the on the ultra-rich. One argument you can make is that if the ultra-wealthy, if their wealth is uh, generated by uh, crony capitalism and use of uh, big government uh, policies like corporate welfare, is their wealth uh, ill-gotten and uh, should it be confiscated? I'm not sure about the confiscation of wealth, but um, if a case can be made for saying that the wealth of the people at the top has not been honestly acquired, then there may be a case for um, there may be a case for a rather steep progressive income tax. Generally speaking, I'm in favour of low taxes on every income group. I would like to live in a country where um, you can make the, you can change, you can adapt these figures for your own country but I would probably be quite content to live in a country where liability for income tax started at £100,000 a year and the rate of income tax was about 5%. Now, how you get from here to there, I don't know. It may lie through um, rather higher taxes for people at the top than we have at the moment, but that's something that I would need to think about in in more detail than I have. One example would be uh, the the people on Wall Street who benefited from those uh, massive bailouts. Yes. I can see... I can see a case in terms of abstract justice for a clawback. 
The the problem is now I do sorry. I I go some of the way in saying that uh, because we do not live in a libertarian society, we need to have an agenda of repeal for the laws and regulations that we actually have. And it may well be that the laws and regulations constraining people at the top should go later rather than sooner. However, once you start talking about clawing back dirty money from the people at the top, you may be arguing for something which will not lead to a more libertarian society. Broadly speaking, I would say that um, if we were to have a libertarian government or a libertarian rollback of the state, we should just accept the current distribution of wealth as it is and leave it to a more free market to bring us to a juster distribution of wealth than we currently have. Uh, do not take away the ill-gotten gains of people at the top, because to do that might take us away from a libertarian society rather than towards one, but leave it to a libertarian society to bring about a more just and equitable distribution but by uh, longer-term peaceful means. You can say that that is naive, utopian, but um, I, I think we do need to be careful about when we start talking about the confiscation of ill-gotten gains. Oh, certainly a, a strict inquisition on how people like Bill Clinton and Tony Blair became as rich as they are, but um, Wall Street, the City of London, uh, probably not. Another argument you can make is that the ultra-rich uh, use their excess wealth to uh, corrupt the political system by uh, donating uh, to politicians and using their wealth to implement their political goals against the, against the best interests of the rest of society. Yes, well, rich people have always done that. Uh, wealth and power have tended to be um, quite highly correlated in all previous societies, and so I'm not at all surprised that it continues to be the case. The, the, the operative question is, what are we going to do about that? And the, um, the track record of revolutions which have set out to despoil people at the top has not been terribly positive. Um, uh, let me... Let me let me take a number of revolutions. If you take the French or the Russian revolutions, which did set out to confiscate the wealth of the previous ruling class, um, it did not make the great majority any better off. If you take the English Revolution of 1688 or the American Revolution of 1776, and these revolutions did not seek to... Uh, change the pre-existing um, patterns of wealth and income, um, they, they did have very positive effects on people at the bottom. And so if we were to be in a position where we could move to a libertarian society, I, I would, maybe with some reluctance, but I would be in favour of leaving people at the top alone. Let them keep their money. Take their power away, but keep their money. You also, uh, you did a video about the myth of Margaret Thatcher, and uh, she's someone who's definitely admired by a lot of, uh, of definitely conservatives, but even a lot of libertarians admire her. Um, Margaret Thatcher took a failing social democratic system and made it much more efficient. Uh, there is no doubt that Britain became a richer country on the whole by the end of Margaret Thatcher's time in office than it was at the beginning. At the same time, she did start the creation of a police state. She started the contemptuous shredding of historic freedoms in this country. 
she also she she also presided over a shift in the economic structure of the country which was not at all to the benefit of uh, the ordinary working classes the, there is no doubt that british industry was in need of some kind of shock by the end of the 1970s <coughs> there is no doubt that um the, the, the trade unions were out of control by the end of the 1970s and some restructuring of the industrial economy was entirely in order but what Margaret Thatcher did with her macroeconomic policies during the first four years of her time in office was to destroy something like 40% of British industry and millions of working-class people were thrown out of their jobs and many of them never worked again and those who did work again often worked in very menial and insecure employments and I, I think that we need to judge Margaret Thatcher on the whole many conservatives and libertarians in your country and mine look at her through rose-tinted glasses. She is the woman who saved Britain from socialism. Many other people on the left look at her as some kind of monster who devoured the working classes. There is some truth in both of those um, narratives, and uh, I try, when I think about her, to reach a more balanced conclusion than most people manage. One thing about uh, uh, England's economy, if you compare it to Germany, uh, Germany's been a very – one of the reasons they've been a very uh, prosperous country and had a much stronger uh, middle class is because they have a strong uh, amount of uh, high-end manufacturing. They make uh, uh, luxury cars like uh, BMWs, Mercedes. They make a lot of uh, high-end uh, kitchen appliances. The thing about England – is England's economy is centered around a fina finance in the city of London, which tends to just benefit the ultra-wealthy. But England's uh, outsourced most of its uh, manufacturing uh, base, like the United States has. And uh, that's probably what, one of the reasons why, if you compare England and Germany, England is in a much worse economic shape. Well, the statistics on that, uh, broadly... I agree with you, but the statistics are not entirely supportive of your case. Um, for example, Britain has the largest car manufacturing sector in the European Union, and I think it has one of the biggest electronic sectors. It, Britain remains a very substantial manufacturing economy. Uh, much more substantial than people in the south of England realise. Um, and although a whole third of gross domestic product is generated in the city of London, obviously two-thirds of British gross domestic product are not generated in the city of London, these reservations being made, I do wish that we had a greater emphasis in this country on manufacturing and less on financial services because I do agree with you financial services tend to benefit people only at the very top um, they do not provide long-term security or dignity to the great majority of people in this country we are effectively counting other people's money and I don't think that that is a sustainable economic model in the long term. When you've, so uh, besides your uh, political work, you've also written a number of uh, historical fiction uh, novels, and you also you have a recent one out uh, that takes, I think a lot of, one of them I know, I'm not sure if it's a recent one, but one of them takes place during the Byzantine Empire, but your recent one is called A Game of empires, and uh, you write this. It's under you write it under a, a pseudonym. Yes, indeed, I am um, 
I write under the name of Richard Blake, and so far I have written ten Byzantine, or I've written ten historical novels set in the Byzantine Empire. Um, if you suppose that I write political propaganda, which is loosely dressed up as fiction, um, I, I must disabuse you of that uh, belief, because I don't. I am not a libertarian novelist. I am a professional novelist who also happens to be a libertarian. And although if you read my novels, it will be quite obvious that I am a libertarian and I am a bit of, of a conservative, I do not, um, I, I do not write propaganda. The, the first rule of writing successful fiction is to write stories that people want to read. And I, I, I try to do that, and um, the, the sales figures indicate that that is what I do. So I would love your readers to go out and buy the novels of Richard Blake. There are ten of them out there. But um, do not expect to find a complete exposition of libertarian philosophy in them. I... I I have never written anything uh, like Atlas Shrugged. I, I have a different view of writing fiction from Ayn Rand. What about what specifically about the Byzantine Empire inspired you? I mean, there's been a lot of empires throughout history. There's been uh, Rome. There's uh, been ancient uh, uh, Egypt. There's been uh, numerous different empires throughout history. What what is specifically about the Byzantine Empire? that inspired you to set a lot of your novels uh, there? I've been interested in the ancient world since I was eight. And having spent four or five years reading everything I could find in English about Greece and Rome, I eventually, at the age of 13, read Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And... I fell in love with late antiquity, the Roman Empire during and after its conversion to Christianity. And when I, was, when I did my undergraduate degree, I found myself drawn continually back to the early Middle Ages and the transformation of the late Roman Empire into what you can... Um, loosely called the Byzantine Empire. The case for Byzantium. Well, the Roman Empire, although it's glamorous, I mean, there's always Hollywood films being made about the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire was an awful place for the great majority of people. Once you get below the top half or quarter of 1%, the people who wore the nice togas with the purple borders and who had the expensive and elaborate educations in rhetoric and Greek philosophy. Once you get below that, it shelves away very steeply uh, until you reach an impoverished and semi-enslaved rural proletariat. Um, with a giant vampire bureaucracy clamped on its back. Uh, yes, uh, most ordinary people in the Roman Empire were effectively owned by landlords or by the tax gatherers. The emperors, a surprisingly high proportion of the emperors, who were not simply mediocrities, were mad or evil or both. And it doesn't, it shouldn't surprise us at all that when the barbarians crossed the Rhine and the Danube, they, they moved through the western provinces of the Roman Empire w without any particular resistance from the people. The mass of ordinary people barely looked up from digging in the fields as the barbarians streamed around them. And the reason they didn't look up was they had nothing to lose. So what? At least these people took away the tax gatherers. Um, it, it may be the case that uh, 
ordinary people were better off immediately after the breakdown of imperial rule in the re- in the West th- than they were before it. The East. Well, I think part of the reason that the Byzantine Empire is kind of ignored in our society is that the Roman Empire was sort of a basis for uh, Western European civilization. Uh, the Byzantine Empire is more. I know. Uh, Eastern Orthodox <laughs> societies, like especially, I know Russia has sort of an affinity for the Byzantine Empire, but it's sort of ignored in Western Europe and America. Yes, you're right. The barbarians who invaded Western Europe learned Latin, they converted to Roman Catholic Christianity, and they saw themselves as a continuation of the Western Roman Empire the Greek-speaking Eastern Roman Empire was an increasingly alien and exotic thing. Um, What I would say in favour of the Byzantine Empire, though, is that as it became more Byzantine and less Roman, it became considerably more humane. Um, Once you got into the crisis of the 7th century, when the empire was attacked by the Persians, by barbarians from the north and the east, and ultimately when it was attacked by the Arabs from the south. The the empire reformed itself. It broke up the aristocratic estates, these great latifundii, and gave land to the peasants. The people who worked the land became owners of the land. They were given land on condition of military service. And the bureaucracy, which had, which had been a parasitic drag on the Roman Empire as a whole, was downsized. And what happened was that whereas when the western provinces were invaded by barbarians, ordinary people didn't lift a finger to protect the established order, when the Arabs and when the Persians invaded the Byzantine Empire, they found themselves crashing into a wall of armed peasants, and they didn't get through that. The Byzantine Empire gave people at the bottom a stake in the empire, and it shouldn't be surprising that the Byzantine Empire, for about 500 years, right up until the 1070s, was the richest and most powerful state in the Mediterranean world. We are uh, out of time, so I would like to uh, thank uh, Sean uh, Gab for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. A most interesting discussion. Uh, thanks again. Uh, That's all we have for uh, today's show, so take care, and we'll be back with you next time.